CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist-recommended facial moisturizer brand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Health Podcast, a new season from BBC Good Food. I'm Tracy Ray, Qualified Nutritionist and Health Editor here at BBC Good Food. In this series, I'll be your host as we explore the world of health and wellness through a series of interviews with renowned and innovative experts across the globe, where I'll be seeking out some of the best practical tips and advice they have to offer. Remember that all content provided here is for informational purposes only. If you have any questions or concerns related to your personal health, you should first seek the advice of your local healthcare practitioner. This week, we're talking dietary diversity and personalized nutrition. Joining me is Tim Spector, Professor of Genetic Epidemiology and Director of the Twins UK Registry at King's College London. Tim has authored four popular books, including his most recent, Spoonfed, and is ranked in the top 1% of the world's most cited scientists, having published more than 900 research papers. With a current focus on diet and the microbiome, we'll be looking at how your gut health may influence your weight, why diversity matters when it comes to diet, and whether a more personalized approach is the future of healthcare. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. <laughs> Great. So I'm sure that a lot of listeners will know your name. But for those who may not be familiar with what you do, can you explain what epidemiology is and what you, drew you to this field of study? Sure, yeah. Two years ago, nobody had heard of an epidemiologist, thought it was someone who yeah. studied skin or something like that. So uh, COVID has really um, made this a, a profession that people are talking about. And essentially, it's, it's uh, a medical researcher either a medical background or a scientific background, who studies diseases in populations and mm -hmm. looks at uh, how you can look at risk factors and how you can learn something about uh, a disease or problem by studying lots, thousands of people and gathering that data together. So whereas a clinician just looks at one person, uh, an epidemiologist mm -hmm. will look at thousands or hundreds of thousands of people to try and... Uh, move from the anecdote to something that's more robust so we can uh, talk about the causes of disease and how to prevent it. 
So you're talking about causes of disease and how to prevent it. Where does the um, aspect of diet and dietary influence come into that study? Well, as I've been an epidemiologist, you know, uh, most of my career, and I've, I, I spent quite a lot of time when I set up the twin unit in about 27 years ago, looking at genetics. And I was really interested mm. in the links between uh, twins and how often diseases tend to cluster and uh, identical twins were was, was so similar. But the last 10 years, I've got more interested in why identical twins are more different uh, than mm. we'd expected, why they die of different cancers or get different diseases, or one can be overweight and the other one's skinny you know, much more than we'd perhaps thought for mm. what's unusual because these are genetic clones. And so that really led me to think, if I can find the difference between these genetic clones, that can give me real insight into uh, why people get different diseases or problems. And mm. that's when I hit across the gut microbiome and started yeah. measuring gut, gut health because mm. of all the things I looked at, that was the one that was most different in identical twins. And that led me into this idea that, wow, if that's true, then this could explain why we've got everything wrong about nutrition, because we've always assumed mm. that nutrition works the same in everybody. And, and that was, a, for me, a real game changer. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you, so you talk a lot about um, the, some of these misconceptions around diet and nutrition in your latest book, Spoonfed. Um, and I guess I'd really like to talk a little bit more about the concept of diet because I hear the question a lot um, of what is the healthiest diet. And let's be honest, it's a question that, um, there has been a lot of research hours and professional debate behind as well. Um, and I'd love if you could share from your own perspective, before getting into dietary specifics, what we know about how the body responds to the food that we eat. So when it comes to the gut microbiome or blood sugar levels or, or, or blood fat levels, etc. Right. So great question. So until the last three, four years, we've really not paid any attention to that side of nutrition. Hmm. We have just treated nutrition as numbers and percentages and assumed that everyone responds the same. And so didn't even bother looking yeah. uh, to see what happens. And so if you remember in medicine, most of the blood tests are done fasting. Yes. Okay. Because we said, oh, it's annoying to have all that food in the way. It just messes up a nice blood test. Exactly. But actually all the interesting stuff was what happens after you've eaten, not before, because everyone's actually quite similar before. It's but they're really different after a meal, and that this is this this whole new area, which mm -hmm. um, with the company Zoe, um, with, that I helped co-found four years ago, we got together to do get the funding to do these predict studies, which are these massive studies of normal people. Uh, now we've got about 4,000 people we've studied, giving them all identical meals and seeing how they they respond differently in their blood sugar, the blood fat, and the microbiome. And that was a real eye-opener because it just, the first time we saw the results, said, oh, these don't even, can't be true. There was like an eightfold difference between normal mm. people. And so these aren't people with diabetes or 
other conditions. It's just normal, average people uh, from the UK and the US. Eightfold difference in how we respond. So no two people had the same blood profiles after eating an identical muffin. And then you start thinking, well, if everyone's different in their response, and that's because they've got different metabolism and they've got different microbes, Mm. that really tells us that there may not be one diet that does fit everybody, that actually... Mm. You know, we're, we are so complex and food is so complex that these interactions mean that we have to start thinking of food in a totally new way so that this standardized perfect meal that governments have been trying to uh, spoon feed us with for the last mm-hmm. 30 years have just failed miserably. And, yeah. you know, there isn't a certain percentage of anything that we should be having. We, we all need to start to work out what suits all of us best. I think that's such a fascinating point that you made as well, because I know from uh, myself when I was going through university and going through all the kind of nutritional research, you know, a lot of the studies that we do have, they're looking at, at, say, a diseased population. So when we are checking biomarkers, we're looking at people with diabetes or, or heart disease. Um, or maybe when we're just purely looking at diet, we're, we're not putting as much emphasis on those, on those markers as well. So it's so interesting what you say in these PREDICT studies, where not only are you looking at, you know, um, albeit healthy individuals, um, but you're looking at those markers um, in response to their diet. So I guess where that leads me then is in terms of the hypothesis of calories in versus calories out, where does that leave us? Well, it's it really blows it all apart, really. That yeah, and 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 I, I'm not a calorie denier. They do exist, mm. okay. But what we've done is massively overemphasize its importance in nutrition. And this has been a, a huge smokescreen for basically filling us up with really rubbish food and mm. disguising it because it's slightly lower in calories than some other food. And this is what the food manufacturers have done. And it's been aided and abetted by government agencies and everybody really in this rather futile um, idea that just by buying things slightly lower in calories, you can actually get mm. healthier diets, you can lose weight. And, it, and it's been proven time and time again. It, and it depends on these these myths that uh, all calories are equal, for example, and calories in equals calories out. Mm. And if if we take, I mean, we could talk for two hours about all the things wrong with this. And there's a, <laughs> there's a, a, ch- a chapter in my book, but but essentially you can't measure calories properly. So you don't really yeah. know what you're taking in. And you've got no chance of measuring how you burn calories, which is hugely different. So the mm. idea that all women have 2,000 calories, uh, a need for 2,000 calories a day, is a wild guess. And yeah. for most people, it's not actually accurate. And it changes. As soon as you do some exercise, you actually alter the rate at which you burn calories. So you slow down your rate of burning calories. So actually, mm. you need less if you exercise rather, you know, so um, the whole thing is, is, is very much more complicated than we've been led to believe. Also in the predict studies, we, we did a a lovely study, which only came by chance. We 
um, one of the the analysts uh, from Zoe looked at the the results three hours after a meal and found that quite often people were having a sugar dip after eating their muffins, and mm. maybe one in four people would have a dip, and normally people don't look three hours after they stop at two hours that's what most of the medical uh, data is based on but three hours after Absolutely. we got these dips and it turned out that un- people were wearing a glucose monitor so they didn't know what was going on but those people yeah. reported feeling hungrier uh, before their next meal and at that next meal they would overeat by about 20 percent so you think of that every day those people mm. who just by chance, happen to be, if you like, sugar dippers when they mm-hmm. eat a, a sugary muffin, are going to have an extra uh, two, three hundred calories a day uh, intake compared to the people who, who are not. And so the idea that all calories are equal is busted in that one experiment alone, showing mm. mm-hmm. how how ridiculous it is to think that, you know, you can count that uh calorie and work out what it's going to do to you it, all the food has different effects on us that we're only just beginning to to really understand and so we have to really start again in all our our knowledge of uh, nutrition because there's this whole new science that's based on you know not only this amazing technology that in real time tells you what's going on inside your body as you're eating these glucose monitors mm. and uh measuring the fat levels 6 hours after a meal and your inflammation levels but also the fact we know that food is not just, you know, these four um, divisions of it, calories, sugars, uh, proteins and fats. It's 30,000 mm. chemicals all interacting with our 20,000 genes and our uh, hundreds of trillions of gut microbes uh, in, a, in a really complicated way. And so that coming back to this idea, so it really means that there is no such thing as a perfect meal that's going to suit everybody. There are a few yes. ground rules that are generally good, but that mm-hmm. and that's we we can certainly improve everyone's diet. But there comes a point yeah. where you do need to know whether you're someone who's going to do better on a high fat meal or a high carb meal, or you know, mm-hmm. variations of this. You need to know whether you're someone who's going to be better off eating more of your meals in the morning or eating more of them in the evening, and. I think this is very much the future as we we suddenly, you know, we've had all these these technologies suddenly hit us at the same time. So we're able to do this for the yeah. first time. And it's a super exciting time in nutrition that we can sort of throw away all the rule books and, and, and start rewriting history. Absolutely. And I think it's, as you say, it's kind of almost blowing up nutritional research in a sense is the discovery of all of these complex elements within various different foods because we know um, from looking at previous studies how difficult it is to actually track the real influence of of foods on the body particularly if you're trying to isolate nutrients as well because if you're eating them within a food they don't work like that because they're wrapped in fibers and antioxidants and fats and all of these different things um and then as you say adding the extra layer of complexity in that um 
different people might um, interact differently um, with their with their foods. Um, so when you're talking about these uh, responses that you're seeing, so say someone who's taking a high sugar breakfast, so grabbing a muffin on the go on their way to work, um, are these influences? So when you say someone um, that responds maybe poorly to the, I think you refer to it as a blood sugar dropper. Um, is this something that you're, is this something that you're seeing um, is genetically led? Is it environmentally led? Is it a mix? Or is it something that we're still looking into to discover what exactly is causing these differences? Great questions. Uh, this is all very re new research. So we only just published mm -hmm. the uh, sugar dipper paper in Nature Metabolism uh, a month ago. And so we're, okay. we're looking to try and uh, currently analyzing to see, well, can we predict who would be a sugar dipper? Can you yes. tell from their profile, you know, uh, is it, you know, mainly in women? Is it younger people? Is it people on a mm. certain diet? Is, as you said, are, are genes important in this? And um, we don't know as yet, but I think obviously yeah. that's part of the package of what we're, we're, we're trying to do with the, with the PREDICT studies and, and with the ZOE um, nutritional product is obviously mm. help people make these decisions themselves based on you know hundreds of thousands of people's data and that's that you know going back to this whole idea of epidemiology again that everyone's sharing everyone who does any tests with the on the predict study or on the, on the who buys the zoe product is actually all part of this data sharing idea but yeah we do we do know from the studies that actually uh, genes uh, play only a very minor role in our responses to foods, much less than mm. I thought. Um, and so as a also a geneticist, which is the other side of my yes. job, um, uh, and studying twins, I was very surprised how little genes played a role in our sugar responses to food. It was about mm. less than 30% of the response was due to genes. And when it comes to fats, it was... It was near zero, so yeah, I, I think genes are unlikely to be the answer to this, which is contrary to a lot of the adverts many people see uh, doing sort of food research for genetic companies, saying, "Well, we can tailor your diet to your genes, etc." And it, it turns out uh, that's not true. It's probably more. You know, it is something that's more environmental and related uh, mm. to your gut microbes and maybe things in your circadian rhythm and uh, other other bits about your metabolism. But genes are unlikely to be there. But certainly we hope within a year to be able to get some algorithms together to be able to um, say to people, you know what, you're a, you're a sugar dipper and you should really mm. not be having a sugary breakfast. And uh, But having said that, some people already know that. We do know. So yeah. I always thought, I always thought, um, and it's, Typically, I might be biased here, but my experience was that it was, you know, women in their 20s uh, would get to 11 o'clock and have a sort of what they called a sugar crash. They said, mm. oh, I feel weak and woozy. Uh, I'm not concentrating. I've got to have a McVitie's um, or a, I've got to have a Kit Kat or something like this, right? So mm. um, some people really did feel I didn't believe them, but now I do. Uh, I realized I was wrong, but obviously what they shouldn't be doing is having the carbs in the first place 
and they should mm. probably be you know having a high fat breakfast and and not going these up and down sugar dips which we yeah. know from our other studies not only makes you overeat but also through metabolic patterns will make you lay down more fat and also give you yeah. more long after years heart disease and things like this so i think these we're learning little lessons from these anecdotes but it is amazing mm. how a few people do um, perhaps are more aware of their body than other people and i think many yeah. people listening to this might be in that category and say oh i always knew that but now you can prove it with these uh these sugar monitors absolutely and i think you know it's very while i know the research is quite new and it's of course ongoing I think it's quite encouraging to hear the idea that um, maybe it isn't all genetically led and that there is potential um, for environmental influence in that, you know, if we are experiencing some uh, diet or lifestyle related health issues, that there are certain things that we can do, even in a simple way, as you say, instead of just taking snacking on um, a purely sugar based um treat or, or food item, combining it with some fat or some protein to kind of lay down the, the the proper digestive processes and support your metabolism are little things that we can look at starting to do. Yeah, I think the message is much more uplifting and positive than the previous genetic one, which, you know, yeah, uh, I was I was involved in spreading as well. So um, I know, you know, I know that we perhaps oversold the genetics. Um, and, and the mm. proof of pudding here is because there's still people who say, oh, we haven't done the latest test or, you know, there's always this other one coming on the high street you can measure. But we looked at identical twins and they share mm. all their genes. They, their twin is the perfect genetic test for them. And mm-hmm. they still had different responses to food. So, yeah, to my mind, even if the best test in the world, you can't predict. And even with the sugar dippers, you know, some twins would be dippers and their co-twin would not be a dipper. So it, mm. it is a lesson that um, if we believe things like uh, the microbiome can be changed, which we know they can, if you, mm. you know, just switch your diet to change your microbiome, you can change your response to food. And I think that is a really empowering message that all of us need to take and realize that you know the gut microbiome is really like a a valuable organ in our bodies that we need to mm-hmm. really learn how to look after, you know, treat as our favorite pet or or garden or whatever it is. But if that's in mm-hmm. optimal state, really we can do all kinds of positive things with our body. And uh, uh, and it, you know, if we look after it, the microbes, they'll look after us because they're essentially chemical factories that are just. Uh, pumping out thousands of useful chemicals for us, for our brain, keeping us happy, stopping depression, uh, helping our mm. metabolism, helping us break down foods into, into other bits. And also, crucially at the moment, COVID, you know, looking after our immune system and fighting infection. Absolutely. And I think that's so interesting what you mentioned about the, the gut microbiome, because I think obviously in a lot of cases when you're trying to look at uh, comparative research, you know, twin studies is is kind of the, the creme de la creme. And it's so interesting that you mentioned um, this idea that perhaps it's it's the gut microbiome um, that might be an influencing factor in the differences that you're seeing. 
For anybody listening that may not be as familiar with the term gut microbiome, would you be able to give a little bit of a description about what that is and how it is influencing the rest of our body? As you say, it's kind of a factory with lots of chemicals, but I guess expanding on the idea that it's something that you're supposed to give prebiotic foods to. Yeah, okay. So it's the word microbiome is generally for the a word for the community of all the bugs mm. that live in your body. But in reality, we're talking about 99% of them are all in one place. They're in the lower part of your intestines, the large intestine, the colon. And that's really what we're talking about because that's where we sample. Uh, we you know get stool samples and that's what we know, we know about. And in there are around 100 trillion uh, bacteria and four times as many viruses. There are plenty of uh, fungi in there. And there are also some interesting parasites that it turns out you can now measure. And I've got them as well, but mm. some of them are good guys. And 99.5% of all the microbes inside you are trying to help you. Okay, we used to think they were mainly baddies, but mm. actually it's the other way around. And all healthy animals have this set of uh, microbes inside them and essentially they convert food that you you give them that reaches them so it has to have enough fiber uh, be hard to digest food mm. that you get in plants uh, they they break that down to produce healthy chemicals that are useful for them mm-hmm. um, and components of food that are that are valuable for them to give them an energy source and these are things we can discuss later called polyphenols. Yeah. Um, but also the fiber itself, they break down. And then in return, they produce other chemicals that in a very specialized way, because there are you know, thousands of different species and strains all working slightly differently in a slightly different factory to produce slightly different chemicals that then get passed through your gut into your bloodstream and go to your brain, go to all the other organs and also nourish all the immune cells and communicate with them around your body. So they're really, we, we, you know, our whole sense of anatomy was missing this, this sort of missing piece. Yes. And it, it explains why nutrition is not just about energy and, you know, a dull tube. And it changed the whole idea of what fiber is. Yeah. Which we just thought was a bo- boring conduit, you know, to make you go to the toilet more. Exactly. Um, like, you know, all brand is just, a, you know, flush it all out, get rid of the toxins, yeah. all that nonsense. So it's really crucial about, and and so that, that's that's what this, and they all work together. And so this is really important to understand that, you know, there isn't one bug in isolation and they, they work together and they try and, uh, what you eat depends on which species you've got. So you yes. can grow them up, uh, you can grow them up in, in different ways. And in general, you want the more more diversity of microbes the better mm. and that's what we aim for uh, we have selected also with these uh, predict studies um, 30 bugs that everybody has and it's 15 good and 15 bad yeah that gives you an idea of the good ratio to uh, to get hold of but essentially diversity is the simplest concept yeah and that means you will get more of the good guys and less of the bad guys mm-hmm. and that means you get many more of these beneficial chemicals which 
do everything we've discussed. Um, exactly. Keep you happy, keep you slim, uh, keep you energized, keep your immune system, help you against mm. fight cancer, help you actually break down medications better so yes. that they work, uh, uh, which you know varies in everybody as well. So that's one reason that everyone needs to feed them right. And you do that with uh, good foods and you know, I recommend 30 different types of plant a week. Yeah. Um, to get to get that really rich diversity of species. So and plants mean anything include nuts and seeds yeah. and herbs. Yeah. And spices. It's not as hard as that it sounds to get that diversity. Definitely. And I think just to highlight again for our listeners what you're talking about in terms of um eating that kind of diverse diet and supporting the the good bugs in in your gut because I think often um, as public we hear from you know nutrition or medical or health professionals don't forget to eat your fiber but as you say um, a lot of us just think about that and equate it to making sure we have regular bowel movements whereas in fact all the different, there's actually many different fibers um, in all the different foods that we're eating. So um, a bean, like a kidney bean, will have a different composition of fibers to uh, a piece of kale, for example. And you're saying that all of these different fibers feed the the different microbes and uh, cultivate diversity based on the the mix of of different plant foods that you're providing so that's the real reason behind i guess just to highlight for for people listening that we are always saying eat more fiber eat a variety of foods eat um whole foods nuts seeds beans legumes um uh, plant foods everything like that so i think i think it really brings that picture together in a fascinating way. Yeah. And it, and it comes into this whole idea that, you know, food is not just a bean, uh, you know, a grain, uh, uh, a cabbage. It's mm. each one of them has, you know, a thousand chemicals. Yeah. And yeah. they're all different. That gives them their different taste, their different smells. And when you cook them, you get different uh, chemicals as well. Mm-hmm. And so it's that whole mix of complexity that the richer your diet is uh, and the more interesting ways you cook, mm. also you will get greater richness of, uh, in a way, what I call fertilizers for your microbes. And it's, yeah. it's that idea that you're actually trying to get a really rich, diverse fertilizer like you would for you know getting your soil mm. uh, nice and diverse. And, and there are lots of analogies between how we eat in our body and how we yeah. you know, treat our garden or how we treat the planet. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's all falling into shape in this sort of ecological framework. And um, the only thing we've forgotten here is obviously uh, we're talking about fertilizers, which means we're calling prebiotics. Yes. So these are things that feed microbes. But also there's this other group of foods that I'm a big fan of called probiotics. And this is just live microbes mm-hmm. that uh, the live microbe is what you're eating uh, in something like yogurt um, is actually... Um, send signals to other microbes in your gut to stimulate them. And that's mm-hmm. uh, they're sort of boosters, if you like, that you can um, send down there. And that's why having some f- fermented food on a small amount on a daily basis um, has been proven to be healthy as well. So that's the other part of um, this, this trilogy of ice. So the, the 30 plants a week, 
regular fermented foods mm. and the third one is is always picking your if you if you can pick your your foods to eat it's these ones high in polyphenols as well so yeah. variety plus those that have these natural defense chemicals in the plant um, mm. that often protect the plant but also are uh, rocket fuel for your gut microbes and there's some interesting surprises about which foods have the highest levels of polyphenols but um, and generally it's the bright colors mm. uh, but there are also some surprises because it often that astringent taste um, the sort of taste of red wine yeah uh, or, or slightly sour grapes mm-hmm. um, that means they're high in polyphenols uh, dark chocolate is another one. Yeah, you know, good good quality olive oil, um, and, and and various nuts and seeds are are the others. Plus, you know, the sort of really brightly coloured plants that uh, we all know. But uh, there are some exceptions because iceberg lettuce, for example, has zero uh, polyphenols in it. Yeah, and uh, it's it's just how we've over over cultivated some produce just to stay for a month in our fridge but has actually no nutritional value so again it's trying to understand that link uh, between what the microbes like and what you know what is convenient exactly and I think I mean obviously it's not a, a straight cut but I think often you know, looking for those quite pigmented foods. So, um, you know, the the bright fruits and the bright vegetables. And I think it's quite a nice surprise as well to to learn about the polyphenol content of things like red wine and, and dark chocolate um, and all of those enjoyable foods as well. What I wanted to ask you just while we're on the topic of the gut microbiome, and I know you mentioned um, you've kind of put together um, a grouping of some of the uh, bacteria that have positive effects and some of them that have less positive effects on the body. And I know that there's a lot of research around this and uh, weight um, and, uh, as you know, Im- immunity and things like that. Um, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about um, the influence of gut health on our weight in particular, because I think as in some ways as unfortunate as it is because of all the amazing things that diet can do for us in terms of energy and mental well-being and immunity, I think sometimes for a lot of people, weight is that um, entry point into considering what they're putting on their plate. So I wondered if you could just extrapolate a little bit on that relationship that we're seeing around weight and gut um, in particular. Yeah, well, th- there is a lot of evidence It's that's accumulating. It's not yet perfect. Mm-hmm. But at least for the last 10 years, been doing lots of work in animals fiddling around with their microbes and you can make them fat or thin. Yeah. Uh, we we did a study back in 2014 where we we looked at uh, th- uh, a thousand twins and found that the, the twin with the uh, who was heaviest uh, always had less diverse microbes than the the, the twin that was uh, thinnest. Mm. And so um, and there's big competition between twins. They don't like to be called the uh, the skinny twin or the overweight twin. So um, they try and be as similar as possible, but we could, the the microbes were clearly different between Mm -hmm. these twins. And when we took the microbes from 
the uh, overweight twin at, or the skinny twin. So I think it was the skinny twin that fixed it. We took them from the skinny twin and put them into mice. Mm. We could stop those mice getting fat. Yeah. And so that's that's the evidence that, you know, this grouping of microbes uh, can actually produce the chemicals that improve the metabolism and stop you putting down the, the fat as much. Mm. And so there have been a number of experiments like that. And uh, we've also shown that, uh, that you know, in, in our twins over time, twins that have uh, lots of plants in their diet, um, have high fiber contents, will maintain their weight, you know, across their 40s and until 60. Whereas mm. the, those that don't, uh, which adversely affects the gut microbiome, will continue to gain weight. So we know that it's 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 pretty crucial. Um, and um, what we don't yet know is which is the exact microbe yeah. that you know is beneficial. But we're getting closer. And so um, in our latest uh, paper with the Zoe team of the Predict studies, we did highlight a couple of microbes that like this parasite I was talking about at the yeah. beginning, blastocystis, if you've got this guy, you are 30% less likely to uh, be obese or mm. have internal fat. So some microbes are really good to have. Um, what we don't know is whether you can give them to people and they'll stay. Yeah. You know, uh, it, uh, we don't know how easy it is to transfer them or exactly. put them in probiotics yet. So and there, there's many other examples, uh, other microbes that, are also doing a similar job. Mm. Whereas people with bad microbes are producing chemicals that are actually pro-inflammatory. Yes. And they sort of cause stress in the body. But so I think that it's not to say that the microbiome is the only thing that affects uh, putting on weight. Absolutely. I think it's, it's and that's why, uh, you know, we, as we've moved forward from the, the studies, we are making sure that it's more a holistic approach. So mm. Avoiding foods that give you the sugar spikes, avoiding foods that give you a fat spike, which causes inflammation in the blood, mm. and also avoiding foods that harm your microbiome. And if you get all those three together, uh, our idea is that's that's what uh, personalizing nutrition will will look like in the future. And that's what for the last three months we've been we launched in the US with the Zoe product, and mm. so far without talking about calories without talking about restricting anything, just giving people choices yes. of foods that meet the algorithm. They are uh, losing weight. They are uh, improving energy levels and feeling much better just because they're not having all these ups and downs and yes. spikes. And, and, and they're also improving their gut microbes on the way through. So I, I think it's a holistic approach uh, rather than just it's all about this one thing or this one you know but humans love the simple they love the simple story we all want that one su magic supplement or that one probiotic or that uh, uh the, the magic pill with the, the magic spice or whatever but yeah um, but i think we can educate people that actually you can do this and without having to you know restrict your body of calories or mm. go on a cabbage soup diet or go on a keto diet you mm. know everyone can everyone can make their own choices but be informed and i think uh you know i'm 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 looking forward to you know seeing what the british people think of this when we you know when the products available before the end of the year uh, be exciting to be you know experiment 
real science in action um, as we as we start to understand how it, you can use it in, in you know in reality. Absolutely, and I mean, I think what I'm hearing from you is it's not that calories don't have their part to play and that they're not a factor. Um, but I think more so it's about opening up the conversation in that they're not the only factors. So we need to start looking at the other elements, like you say, nutrient density of food. Um, because if food, in fact, is this kind of um, bucket of information with all of these different signals through fiber and vitamins and minerals to the body and and the gut microbiome, then of course there's going to be more of an influence than than just the the calories themselves. Bringing it back to weight, um, again, the the idea that weight is something, um, that's quite controlled with with metabolism in terms of, and I think in a lot of ways sometimes the concept of of metabolism seems like something that you either have or you don't. In the sense that there's those people that have high metabolisms that can eat whatever they want and they stay slim, and then there's people that have um, slower metabolisms and they only, you know, they eat very healthy, very well, but they seem to continue to put on weight. But again, with that conversation, I think what you're saying here is that there might be some other factors that we we can look at um, to help support um, those metabolic processes. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, again, it's just trying to break away from the old fashioned ideas that, mm. you know, there's two types of people, high metabolism, low metabolism, one group never have to worry and the others, you know, there's nothing you can do about them. And mm. and it com- comes back to, the, you know, there's plenty you can do because um, in that low metabolism group that find always gaining weight, you know, let's let's look at when are they eating their meals, you know, circadian yeah. rhythms can have a huge effect we you know we were miss we were told we should never eat our calories in the evening it should all be in the morning yeah we should have masses of breakfast all this mm-hmm. is nonsense for the you know there are a few people that suits but there's plenty of people that doesn't suit um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. many people uh you know as long as they don't have eating disorders will do well to skip breakfasts and just have two yeah. meals a day and do it in a shorter window so that the microbes mm-hmm. recover. Um, you know, in the future we'll Have be you... able to predict who's a morning person, who's an evening person. So, you know, mm-hmm. lots lots of things you can tinker with uh to improve everybody uh, just by tailoring how we eat, not and uh, not depending on you know outfashioned guidelines and the labels on packets and supermarkets mm. telling you this is low fat and low calorie, therefore eat it, you're going to be fine because that is the worst possible world. And we're currently living Mm -hmm. in this world where, you know, the UK is leading Europe in eating ultra processed foods and it's getting worse. Yeah. And and it's, we have to educate people about understanding the quality of food and what the good things are in it. And then not worrying Mm -hmm. about the fat content or the calorie really at all. Because I think once, Mm -hmm. once you break that link, you know, if you're eating good food, you don't have to worry about calories. 
And just kind of to add on to what you're saying there, because I think it comes up a lot in terms of when you are talking about diet and what's healthy. I think while there are some differences between um, different professionals, something that often comes up is, well, at the end of the day, ultra processed food isn't doing anybody any favors. But I think additionally, what you're saying as well, and I guess something that I've always questioned, but we're still building the research around, is the idea of lack of diversity. So even if you are avoiding ultra-processed food, that's brilliant, but there's still actually a need to change up the types of foods that you're consuming. Because again, I think a lot of people, when we're living such fast-paced lives or um, we're trying to organize ourselves, we can get into the habits of eating the same thing for breakfast, lunch, and dinner day in, day out. Um, But it's actually really important that you are changing up the types of foods that you're eating as well to support that gut microbiome and the diversity within it. Couldn't agree more. Absolutely. You, you hit it on the head. And, you know, for 10 years, I was having the same boring NHS sandwich, uh, which I thought was healthy with tuna and sweet corn uh, mm. on brown bread. And of course, I now know that was a disaster for me and, you know, maybe put on a kilo a year, probably. Yeah. But um, yeah. And why didn't I experiment? Why, you know, and, and a lot of people have their go to work sandwich or whatever it is. And we, yeah. you know, that. The average supermarket has 30,000 different items, but, you know, we'll choose the same 20 every week. You know, and it's like, mm. why? So perhaps there's too much choice. But I think now people can understand they're not eating just for themselves, but they're eating for their yeah. pet microbes. You can say, well, let's, let's give my microbes something new this week. Uh, let's, you know, we haven't had a bit of pomegranate or let's get some Persian purple carrots here. Let's mm. uh, Let's mix it up a bit. Let's try some nuts we haven't had for a while let's uh yeah um maybe some interesting herbs so everybody everybody can do better and we all need a nudge in that direction and you know uh and i'm certainly still not perfect but i you know i do try and find new things on a restaurant menu for example that i haven't tried or thought oh i didn't like that 20 years ago and you know yeah actually i love it now you know and so Mm. all of us i think need to uh start experimenting again with our own taste buds, which do change over time uh, Absolutely, as, as we move forward. And I think, you know, hearing these kind of conversations, particularly from experts like yourself, um, really helps to raise awareness as well, because I think sometimes it's, yes, it can be habit and convenience, but sometimes if you don't actually realize that diversity and switching things up is important, if you think, oh, well, as long as I'm having a salad or as long as I'm having an apple every day, then you your mind might not actually go there. You might not even think, oh, I could be I could be doing something to improve my health. You might think, no, I've ticked that box onto the next thing. So I think hearing you say things like that is is kind of almost a little bit of a nudge to get excited about trying new foods and new recipes and different restaurants and things like that again as well. Yeah, and I think we did a study with the American Gut Project showed that vegans didn't have the best gut microbes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the best gut microbes was actually people that ate the most diversity of foods. So yes. yes, there are some healthy vegans, but there are also some very unhealthy vegans. And mm. so everybody, whether you eat meat, you eat fish or or not, um, mm. can also improve their diet. And I think that's the other message that we mustn't get stuck in these 
rather rigid boxes of food religions, you know, yes. keto, uh, low carb, low fat, this, which all it does is restrict your choices. You yeah. just should be very open-minded, uh, invite all religions in and just yes. you know, the religion of diversity, diversity should be the one that um, primarily wins. And uh, definitely, uh, and, and we, you know, that's definitely being borne out by all the science happening now. And I think if you embrace that, then really all the other things come because you will naturally eat less calorie dense foods. You will eat less ultra processed mm. foods. You you will probably snack less um, because you won't be feeling as hungry. You will have you know more energy. And, um, yeah. and and just thinking about, oh, well, you know, my microbes need a rest. I'm not going to go down just before going to bed and have a biscuit and, uh, you know, a, a glass of milk. Let's get, yeah. you know, we all like a break. Let's give them a rest too. And I think exactly. it's because, and, 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 you know, because yes, food companies want us to eat all the time. They want us to have snacks all the time, but actually our gut microbes don't. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really another great point to highlight as well in that, you know, definitely for anyone that's, you know, consumes a largely ultra processed uh, diet, um, there there often will be a little bit of a transition period as you as you try to eat more whole natural foods like fresh fruits and vegetables, your body might have a little bit of a shock thinking, where's all the sugar and salt? And I think, again, for a lot of people, you know, we've had processed foods in our diet for a long time now. So there's there's individuals that have never actually not had processed food in their diet. So I think a little bit of an understanding for anyone listening who might want to dip their toes into the idea of increasing the diversity in their diet through trying uh, new fresh fruits and vegetables and meats or fish or, or nuts or, or whatever that may be, um, to have a little bit of patience in that there might be a little bit of, of that adjustment period. But your body is highly intelligent and it it knows what it wants it knows what it needs and it kind of it, it will adjust eventually and as you say you know potentially even not have those cravings that you used to have or those afternoon crashes um the the need for that late night snack all of those things yeah no they can all change and actually your microbes can change faster than people think so studies do show that you know they can change within a week and uh Incredible. on your the state you, you you go in which means already within a few days they'll be producing different chemicals than they were before so uh, yeah. I think you, you can start to see these effects um, you know some people will have problems with um, their transit times and their bowels um, mm. as they switch from low fiber foods to high fiber foods yeah uh, but at the moment you know people are just not getting sufficient whole foods through ultra processed diets mm -hmm. and um which are currently getting half their calories from in this in the uk so yeah uh, there's a huge way to go so even if you start slowly you know uh and and just uh bit by bit do it um mm -hmm. while we're on the topic of of fiber i mean i don't know if you heard about our our blue poop challenge um no we uh with the company zoe in the us we actually uh -huh. Um, advertised a, a bit that came out of one of the studies was that um, if you give people a blue dye in their muffin, you can time mm -hmm. how long it takes to get out to the other end into the toilet. Yeah. And we did this 
to measure what's called transit time. And that can vary a lot between people. Everyone has a different length of gut. Mm. The sort of waves take different times and also your diet has an effect on it. And it turned out that uh, it was really well correlated with your health of your gut microbes. So it ended up being a better test than the previous clinical test, which was called the Bristol stool chart. Yes. And so, which most nutritionists have heard of, um, which isn't that easy to easy to use. And so this one is, is something everyone can do at home and actually gives you an idea of what's happening inside your gut. So you might think you're healthy, but many people did the test and uh, had their blue food or blue muffin and realized that it took about four days to come out the other end. Mm. So that really sluggish gut, which means that you're an idea that you can get for f- free about a, a cheap test for your gut microbes before you know you might want to consider paying a more common, uh, yeah. more money for for those things. That's something that everyone can do and um, go to the if they look up blue poop challenge. Uh, and we're trying to collect you know a million people's um, transit times, uh, which oh, is wow. kind of fun as well to ra- raise awareness really of the importance of the inner self as opposed to you know just your weight or whether you've got bloating and things like that. So hopefully this, all this, all these things together are going to make people think much more uh, about what they put in their mouths. And I think, you know, even for, uh, unfortunately, I, I imagine that there's a lot of people listening as well that, you know, may struggle even to have one bowel movement a, a day. The average person in a, in the UK when we did a thousand people was about 28 hours and the range the range was about 10 hours to um, seven days Mm. and we think that you should be having at least uh, one bowel movement a day Mm. Um, I was 19 hours so I was quite proud of that but several people beat me so I I can definitely do better and um you know, and we we don't know yet what's average for everybody at different ages and and males and females. So, in a way, we're still learning. Still this learning. The previous previous biggest study of this was about twenty people. So, mm. um, I think it just shows this whole neglected area of uh, healthcare that we, yeah. we haven't got a clue. And and certainly in the UK, we're, we're just not good at asking people these sort of questions. We're still embarrassed to talk about poo. Um, and I think many. Other countries are not, and that might be one reason they're healthier. (laughs) That's a very good point. Maybe we need to be talking about it more. Before I do move to the closing questions, just to to round out um, what we've been talking about today, um, I'm hearing a lot from this about the importance of uh, personal considerations and diversity when it comes to the diet. Um, But I wonder, where does that leave universal dietary recommendations? Because, of course, there is still value and need for for some universal um, recommendations, you know, for the wider public. Um, And I I know that there are certain things that that we can probably agree on. But I wonder, from your perspective, what what kind of things can can we say from a general uh, standpoint that that are good for us that we should be considering? Well, what's interesting is we, we asked thirteen professors of nutrition in the in the UK and the US to rank one hundred and four foods. There's supposed to be a consensus on food guidelines, but 
what turned out they they agreed really well with about half of them but mm. this other half they didn't agree on at all and so yeah. the idea that there is this massive consensus behind what we should be eating is just not there at the moment so yeah there there was no consensus on uh dairy there was no consensus on yeah. things like fruit juices there was no consensus on uh low fat uh products um there was no consensus on uh artificial sweeteners in 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 foods or drinks or whether they're healthy or very unhealthy mm. and so uh and and the whole area of fat i think is still hugely contentious so uh, what i would say is if you are going to have guidelines just base it on what where there is a consensus not trying to force mm. a consensus where it it doesn't exist like the current uk and to a lesser extent the us guidelines um mm. where they're trying to pretend that still there's good evidence that low fat foods are good for you and that low calorie foods are good for you where there's absolutely zero evidence and so what it should be based on is yeah eating lots of whole food plants is good yeah um you know a certain amount of cereals go for the whole grains uh, say what people know uh mm. we do we've got to find ways of getting people's fiber intakes up um and basically we've got just that one line you know restrict your eating of ultra processed foods and yeah the reason that's not being done is because uh the food lobby of you know got to the governments and uh particularly in this country and made it impossible for anyone to say anything rude about ultra processed foods although all the evidence is that that's our number one health problem in, in the UK and they're still allowed to put health stickers all over it you know um for very unhealthy foods so that would be yeah. my my contention is to say okay these are really good plants and vegetables to eat you don't need juices you just need uh fruits and vegetables um you could have a small amount of meat nothing wrong with that small amount of fish nothing wrong with that as long mm. as you fill your plate with plenty of diversity in plants and yeah. absolutely restrict your um your ultra processed food intakes and yeah. it doesn't matter you know where it comes from if it's a ready meal or whatever and it's made in a factory with 20 chemicals in it you don't need that mm. that would be my idea yeah. of a food guideline and then i would agree to it. i do not agree with the current mess that we've got into at the moment people trying to dictate exactly how much fat you have in your your diet how many carbs uh yeah. all this kind of stuff which is sort of pseudoscience and has got very political yeah i guess it's almost like trying to have a universal clothing size doesn't work <laughs> we're all of different heights and shapes and things like that yeah but I, and things like telling you know telling women that 2000 calories uh you know if they can eat below that they'll lose weight um it's mm. just complete nonsense and, and and many people you know uh, i'm sure listening know know how wrong that is and and that same advice for their neighbor or their sister or their brother you know uh, may mm. have worked it doesn't work for you so people have got to yeah. take these basics and then start learning themselves now we've got massive amount of abundant cheap food compared to 50 years ago we've got to relearn this and we've got to start educating ourselves about about food and you know all become foodies in a way so that um we can teach and the kids need to be taught properly um mm. and you know that's the generation that is is being brought up on the 
on the chicken nugget. And uh, we have to get them to realize that, you know, chicken nuggets don't grow on trees. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think as well, you know, just honing in the message that, you know, because there are a lot of people that have been have been raised on on ultra processed food and may not, um, you know, have have a relationship with with fresh in the ground grown fruits and vegetables. And it might be um, a new and sometimes overwhelming concept. But I think just to emphasize the fact that um, doing something is better than doing nothing. So even if you still are having, you know, chicken nuggets on the weekends or you're having some of the ultra processed foods, that's still the addition of the items that you mentioned, like fresh fruits and vegetables and beans and olive oil and nuts and things like that in some meals and, you know, getting a little bit creative with your recipes or trying different things out in restaurants, they're still going to make an improvement. Um, So you can do kind of little steps in the right direction is that fair to say absolutely agree yeah yeah no it's not a it's not one day to the next you you go out and you know i think it is a gradual process yeah and then as you start and people start to feel better and they start to realize they're less hungry Mm -hmm. when you eat real food rather than ultra processed Mm -hmm. food you know something in there will click and say okay you know i'm going to reserve you know that, that 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 ready meal or that packet of biscuits for you know a special occasion mm-hmm. i'm not going to have it every single day of my life because you know it's been designed to make me eat more food yeah um and i think it's that that educational transition that we we need to make but it is hard and, and there are some f- families on on low budgets mm-hmm. that will find it very hard um and unfortunately you know we do need more help from government for to to help that more deprived area of society mm-hmm. um do that because it otherwise we're just going to split into even worse health groups uh, of the super healthy and the super unhealthy absolutely um as foods if ultra processed foods still stay so cheap and every year is getting relatively cheaper than real food and that's that's a real problem that uh politically you know someone has got to address you know we're yeah uh, no one's doing that yeah and 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 the sugar tax you know could have been so much better because um, all it's done is really just uh, made people have more artificial sweetness, mm. which um, is not good for your gut microbes either and doesn't help you lose weight. So we are having less sugar. Uh, there's no evidence we're losing losing weight as a nation uh, because of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really good point about budget as well, because, you know, you can, there's lots of great budget recipes and and meals. We have tons of them on, on our site. But again, when you're faced with a very tight budget, um, it's very difficult to to choose the, those foods over the super, super low cost of, of highly processed foods. Um, so I think that's a really, really good point as well, because that's actually a very difficult yeah. decision to make um, for a lot of people, but that yeah. there are options out there. There are also processed or highly processed foods that are healthy. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, you might think a can of beans, you know, baked beans come out in my estimation as pretty healthy, actually. Yes. Um, but equally, same price. Some kidney beans in a in a can, canned tomatoes. Yeah, have all the nutrients uh, you need. Frozen vegetables, uh, so there are things like that. Yeah, frozen vegetables, frozen fruits and berries. Mm. Uh, actually, they're all really good. So there is a 
a list of things that people can do to increase their diversity. Yeah. And now nuts, you know, being by big bags of nuts and seeds are relatively cheap yeah. that can be sprinkled on. And, you know, things like natural yogurt are really not that yeah. expensive uh, for most people. So, yeah, I think it's all about educating people and, and moving people away from the the grip of the um, big food companies and the supermarkets and, uh, you know, taking back control of, of the diet. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So before I let you go, I just have a few quick fire questions just to get um, your perspective on. So from your experience of working in this field of epidemiology and, and genetics over many years, what do you think is one of the biggest misconceptions when it comes to maintaining good health? I think the misconception was that diet was only a minor component mm. that basically if you had the right genes and you went to the gym a lot and uh you you didn't overeat yeah. and you watched your calories you'd be fine yeah. and i think it's completely underestimated uh the, the vital importance of the quality of the foods you put in yourself absolutely and i think that that's that's the number one message we need to get out there mm-hmm. that food quality is vital if we're going to um, have any chance of uh, being healthy in the next generation. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we've we've somewhat covered it in in an, a broader way, but just coming back to to changes in nutritional practices when it comes to implementing better nutrition, what what is the first step? So for anyone listening, like what's one thing that they could take away to try and start doing tomorrow that might be helpful? I tell people to experiment with breakfast. Brilliant. I think breakfast is the meal that is the most traditional. People are in a bit of a rush, but actually it's very standardized. You're in control of that Mm. meal. Um, You know, you've generally, you've been fasting generally overnight uh, for at least eight hours and you can you can do anything from skip it and see how you feel till lunch uh, and you know uh, as an experiment you can if you like most people have a high carb meal of of muesli or or cereals and orange juice or toast you change that for a high fat one of uh, yogurt nut nuts and seeds with either a berry mm-hmm. in it um, or you you know switch around with you might get some high fiber um, steel cut oats mm-hmm. that uh, you try as well and experiment and just see how you feel and, and make notes and say okay how do I how do I feel at yes. lunchtime uh, by doing that and I think that's the first that's what I would tell everyone to experiment mm. with their, themselves because you don't know whether you're someone who's going to do pretty well on carbs. Or you'd be better off like me on a on a on a higher fat breakfast. And my uh, my breakfast has changed totally in the last ten years. So um, that's why I'm quite enthusiastic about breakfast yeah. as a a good way to start. And it's it's dead easy to do that. I mean, you know, in lockdown, we've actually had more chances to experiment um, with our diets than ever before. And hopefully, this this will bring people out. And and I guess the second one is. Um, having done that, you can then so try and you know snack less mm. and see how you get on. 
and just try thinking about, well, if I'm hungry, what did I eat before yeah. that? So you start linking these things in your mind rather than just saying, oh, it's just random whether I'm hungry mm, or not. Mm-hmm. It turns out not to be random. It's probably because you had some ultra-processed food that was designed by chemists to make you feel hungry, <laughs> and that's why you're hungry. You know, It's like <laughs> yeah. they did a great job, you know, fantastic. <laughs> Aren't they brilliant? Um, so, and then, of course, you know, the 30... Trying to the get diversity. Put it. Put you can put a little um, sticker on your fridge, mm. and, uh, and just every day say how many different uh, plants did I have this day. I I tell people to have a big buy a big bag of mixed nuts and seeds with as many different types as you yeah. can, and that's and sprinkle it on your salads, uh, your yogurt, everything else, and that you know that's the easy thing to mm. do. Start there. If you feel better, just carry on and you know, do all the other things we've discussed, as well as choosing one fermented uh, food to have every day, a small shot every yeah. day. That will improve your gut health. So they're, you know, three fairly simple things that everyone can do to get started. Mm. And I think there's a lot of fun to be had in there as well in terms of, you know, particularly when you're trying to increase that diversity, you know, if you're trying a new vegetable or fruit or bean that you, you may not have heard of or tried, you can seek out recipes um, and, you know, just expand, which is actually quite fun. Yeah, it, may, it, it means going to the fruit shop, you know, veg or you know, your if you've got a really good green grocer, it's just say, give me something new. Yeah. You know? Oh, let's have a Sharon mm-hmm. fruit. Let's let's have uh, this strange looking thing. I haven't got a clue what it is. Yeah. You know? uh, what's a Punterella? You know, give us give us some cabbage mutant that um, <laughs> I've not had before. Um, you know, it, it does make it more mm. fun because you're it's like stamp collecting, and you can suddenly say, you know, I've got. I, Every, you know, I've got to find something new every yes. week, uh, and and put that, make a little note of it, and uh, yeah, and, and it it does become fun. Mm. Uh, I've never heard of that. I'll eat it, uh, you know, um, and and that becomes the mantra rather than oh, I know I like that, so I'll, I'll have the same. Absolutely, and I think it's a great way to get kids engaged as well in in cooking and their food. You know, you could make it a family thing in terms of you know who gets to choose the the odd vegetable or the or the new item that we try uh for dinner tonight um and it can make it a fun yeah. activity there's plenty of ways people can get started yeah. you know and 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 it, and it but start at breakfast and then work work up because um you know every around the world everyone has a different breakfast yeah. and um you know you think how different the english breakfast is to a korean breakfast um mm. you know of uh of really spicy hot kimchi and, uh, and garlic and mm. whatever. So there's everything in between. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Lots of interesting uh, interesting ones there. So my final question for you is a little bit of a wild card, but it's something that I really like to ask in this series because I think often when we're talking to people who work in the the health research field or the medical field, there can be a little bit of an idea that, um, you know, they're, they're the pinnacle of health and they only uh, meditate and, and eat avocado smoothies and, and fresh greens all the time. Um, so just to kind of break that down a little bit, I always like to ask guests um, when they are choosing uh, a cake or or something baked or they're, they're feeling like something like that what is their choice ah um what's my sort of favorite naughty treat in other words mm, mm-hmm. is that right um it does vary my interestingly that 
as I've changed my diet, my tastes have changed. Um, that's true too. My, my my current favorite. If I was baking um, something, uh, the last sort of uh, year, I, I've been uh, really into um, uh, Basque cheesecake. Ah, interesting. Which that's- which um, is super high on fat. So basically, it's a uh, uh, you just add lots of uh, cream cheese. Yeah. Uh, essentially just lots of uh, cream cheese and creme fraiche and Sounds like uh, a good one. You, you stick it you stick it in the oven in a big container and mm. the top is super crispy and and burnt and uh it's just a a perfect sort of um uh treat really nice so treat. uh that's my that's my so that's my one I, you know i'm i've got more slightly more savory in my um in my treats in, mm. in the last few years, but mm-hmm. that's my current one, and uh, it certainly fills you up. So um, definitely, anyway, and it has the the fats ba- that you say. It has the fats you yeah. say you do well. Plenty on. of fats. <laughs> I, I probably shouldn't eat too much of it, but I think yeah, yeah, yeah if you have a small slice every day, but uh, mm. yeah, I do it when there's other people around because it's it's generally massive. But um, mm. and uh, I think as well, that's, just that's my one. Just from what you said, um, you know, our tastes do change as our diet changes, because again, you know, before I I kind of went through the field of of health, I always looked at people that that ate very healthily, um, that, you know, they must also think that this doesn't taste good, but they're just forcing themselves because it, they, they know it's healthy. But after going through that, that myself in terms of now eating and and really enjoying healthy foods and actually craving those, your tastes do change. And I think that's that's a really good good message to to put out as well. It's it's not always going to be a case that you you're just craving burgers and and sweets and and crisps and cakes all the time. That it does it does change as your diet changes. Yeah, and you change your threshold for sweetness and things like this. Mm-hmm. So yeah, as exactly. everyone knows is when they were a kid, they put three teaspoons in there in every bit of tea. And now, you know, you couldn't do that. So you realize that you do change. And I, I didn't, I couldn't bear beetroot and now I love it. And, um, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I developed a chase taste now for really dark, high cocoa content chocolate. And 10 years ago, Mm. I couldn't go that high. So, you know, I think all of us can, can, uh, have little experiments as we try and push, the boundaries mm-hmm. of uh, our taste buds, and that can be kind of fun as well. Definitely. So, so try some new foods this week, everybody. Um, well, yeah. thank you so so much um, for taking the time to uh, speak to us. Um, it's been such an interesting conversation. I know that a lot of people will will get a lot from this. Um, for anyone listening, you can find more information about Tim and his work by visiting our podcast page at bbcgoodfood.com forward slash podcasts. And don't forget to listen out for our bonus cook along episode this Saturday, where Tim shares a recipe for aubergine veggie chili. Thank you so much, Tim. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the BBC Good Food Health Podcast. For more information, visit bbcgoodfood.com forward slash podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts to never miss an episode.